the history of our world is filled with stories of power and conquest. And sometimes for rulers of, of kingdoms and, and lands, sometimes this is power that was handed down generationally. Power handed down from their parents who handed it down from their parents and so on and so on. Sometimes these stories of power are power that's earned. Someone who comes from a place where they are not powerful, where they don't have riches or wealth or influence, and they fight and they bite and they claw their way up to a place of authority. But one of the things that we see happening over and over again throughout history and all around our world even today is that very rarely do people find themselves in a place of power where they're able to sit back and say, yep, that's enough. This will do. More often than not, what we see is kings and queens looking out the windows of their castle and seeing the boundaries of everywhere that they have supreme authority over, but then they notice that horizon line. And they notice the kingdom next door, and they start to think, what if? What if I could have the power of that kingdom as well? What if my reign reached past the horizon to the next land and the next land and the next? And so then you have people who are no longer satisfied with governing a kingdom, but want to be rulers over an empire. And so they begin to work and to fight and to move beyond their borders and boundaries, and they want to capture more and more and more until they either die in their own kingdom, and then it's inherited by someone who follows after them, or they're killed by a stronger kingdom. And all the spoils and all of their work are taken by somebody else. Our lives are actually not too different than that. Though, of course, on a much smaller scale, we are all often in search for the perfect kingdom. We're desperate to find something to give us some sort of sense of peace or satisfaction or fulfillment. And we look at it in a variety of places. Maybe it's monetary wealth. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's prestige or fame. Maybe it's something with our occupation or our education or relationships. But we have something in our minds that we feel like, if I just had this, if I could just build this kingdom, if I could just reach this achievement or have this thing in my life, then maybe I'll have satisfaction. And a lot of times that hunt for that perfect kingdom can feel very desperate and overwhelming and difficult. And then what often happens is that when we finally do, if we're lucky enough to grab hold of that kingdom that we've been searching for, we realize that it doesn't have the power to actually give us the satisfaction that we thought that it would. But then in comes Jesus. And Jesus brings with him a new kind of kingdom a better kingdom, an eternal kingdom. But as we've seen, as we've been looking through the teachings of Christ in the book of Luke, we find out that it's a kingdom that requires abandoning all others in order to take hold of it. And so today, as we look at Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, we're going to see Jesus teaching us about satisfaction about the kingdoms that we build to try to find it, and how only the kingdom of Christ can bring the true fulfillment that we're searching for. And so today we'll see how none of these kingdoms that we build can stack up to what we're actually searching for. And then next week, as we continue on in Luke chapter 12, we're going to see Jesus teach us how to fully rely on and trust in that kingdom that he brings without being anxious about losing the others. 
But today, let's examine our hearts and our lives as we hear the teachings of Christ confronting the kingdoms that we chase. And so from Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13, he says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we do thank you as always for your word. But it feels very fitting to start as we read this passage with confession. And so we just confess to you today that we try to build our own kingdoms. And that we look for fulfillment and satisfaction in places that you know we'll never find it. So God, as we read your word today, we just ask that you would teach us to find our hope, to find our peace, and to find our satisfaction in you and in you alone. And God, help us to see your kingdom is the better kingdom. Your peace is the better peace. And remind us to look towards eternity and not simply towards the things that give us temporary happiness. But God, you know we need your strength to be able to do that. And so we ask in advance as we prepare to hear the word next week as you teach us about trusting in you above all things. Help us to not be anxious as we seek after you and your kingdom and your righteousness. But help us to learn to fully trust in you and who you are and what you offer us as a good father and a just king. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I'm not a particularly claustrophobic person. I actually tend to prefer smaller spaces. I feel safe. I feel less vulnerable to attack. And so I like the smaller little nooks and crannies of the world. But crowds make me a little iffy. So when we're at a sporting event or something where there's just a lot of people and they're walking a lot of different directions, it just makes me very un uneasy, a little, a little nervous, I guess would be the great way to put it. And so when I think about these scenes that are taking place around Jesus, which seems to be all the time, it's a real intense thing for me. Because these seem like incredibly chaotic things happening. That Jesus is walking and he's teaching, and as he does, it says he's followed by multitudes, which again would make me very uncomfortable and very nervous. But they're not just following him. They're not just listening to him. 
they're shouting things at him and calling out for him. They're touching him and grabbing him, which, by the way, that is the worst thing that happens when you're in a large group of people. When someone touches you and you don't know who it is, I'm fine. I'm a very, I, I love, you know, physical affection with people that I love. I'm a hugger with people that I'm close to. If I don't know you, we don't need to touch. We just don't need to, to cross that boundary until we become good friends. And so in crowds, when people are grabbing and touching and bumping, it's not my thing. But Jesus seems to have this happen to him on a regular basis. People are calling out, asking for him to give them some kind of a teaching or some kind of a sign, some kind of a miracle. They want to be healed. They want to be around Jesus. They just want to be close to Jesus. And it's out of a scene just like that when someone shouts at Jesus a very specific request. Verse 13 here in chapter 12 says that someone yells from the crowd and he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. There's not a lot of backstory there, but I guess he just is hoping that Jesus is going to jump in here and, and solve the problem. And from the outside, with not a lot of context, with not a lot of background there, this seems like a pretty fair request of Jesus. Because during this time, these prophets and, and messiahs and teachers, they were looked on as judges or arbitrators that could help dispute, decide disputes for people. And so he comes with what seems to be a fair question, just asking for his brother to be fair, until we see Jesus' response. And from the way that Jesus responds, we see that this request from this person in the crowd isn't quite as innocent as it may appear. Because what we see happening here is not a cry for justice or a cry for fairness, but it's a play for greed. See, this person sees Jesus and he recognizes the power that Jesus has. He recognizes the influence that Jesus has. He knows that this is somebody who seems to be able to get things done. And so he goes to Jesus and he says, hey, I need you to use your kingdom to help me build mine. I need you to use your power and your influence to help me accomplish something that I can't seem to get accomplished on my own. My brother has this inheritance. I need a little cash. I need some help. I need you to intervene on my behalf and do for me what I want you to do. And now this seems like an audacious thing for somebody to ask of Jesus. We can picture ourselves in this scenario and think, I would be far too uncomfortable to go to someone that I don't know, to someone who's a teacher who's traveling from place to place and demand that he do something for me. But this is something that we do all the time. Very often, our prayers come to God in ways that may seem normal, but have very selfish ends. Too often we pray, God, I want your will to be done so long as my kingdom comes. I want everything that you want in this world as long as it's me that's getting the honor and the glory and the praise from this. And we don't word it like that. We have much more noble ways to put it. But in the essence, that's what we want to happen. Even when we pray for God's will to be done, we want God's will to be done in a way that makes us happy and that does for us what we need to be done. And so Jesus responds, and he says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And now again, Jesus is clearly in a position to actually be a judge and arbitrator. And we know from the rest of scripture that not just on a micro level here in this moment, but that one day this man is going to find himself before the judgment seat of Christ, and Jesus is going to be his ultimate judge for all of eternity. But why would Jesus be the judge of this man's personal kingdom. 
Jesus looks at him and he says, you don't want what I'm offering. You don't want to be a part of what I've brought. You just want me to use my power and my authority to give you what you think you need. And so if you want to have your own personal kingdom, then you need to be the judge and the king of your own personal kingdom. But then in verse 15, he takes this opportunity to say something to the entire crowd, using this man as an example. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We have a tendency to rank sin and to rank the bad things in our lives. And so we could all probably sit down if we were at our most honest and most vulnerable places and make a list of the things that we think are really bad and the things that we think are less bad. And in the back of our minds, for most of us, there's a certain list of sins that we know the Bible probably teaches we shouldn't partake in, but they seem to be much more acceptable sins. They're the ones that tend to be internal, that are a little easier to hide. And they're the ones that we can justify. If we can just use enough words, we can shape them into something else. And covetousness and envy are acceptable sins. They're things that we can participate in. They're things that we can put to use in our lives and say, you know what? This really isn't that bad. And then we can start to lie to those around us and lie to ourselves saying, I'm not really covetous. I'm not really envious. I, I just, you know, I want what's mine. And we mask these things as fairness or ambition or being opportunistic. But in reality, covetousness, envy, jealousy, what it really is, if we're honest, is idolatry. It's greed. And most condemningly, it's a rejection of God's kingdom. We say, God, I know you have things for me. I know you've given me all that I have. I know that every good and perfect gift comes from you, but I don't have enough. What I really want is what this person has. What I really want are the things that I don't have yet, because if I could just lay hold of those things, then I would be really happy. And so these things that we think are very acceptable sins, in reality are very damaging sins, because they're the ones that we can allow to take root in our lives, and we can foster those things and and nurture those things, and they can grow inside of us and turn into much darker things. There's a story in the Old Testament about King Ahab. And King Ahab, if you can't tell by his title, is a king. And he's a powerful king, and he has all that he could want and all that he could need. But he notices there's a man named Naboth. And Naboth has a vineyard. And King Ahab looks at it, and he thinks it's a really sweet vineyard. I don't know what what makes the difference from one vineyard to the other. It probably just looks like a lot of grapes. But King Ahab really likes Naboth's vineyard. And so he comes to this man and he says, hey, man, I really like your vineyard. And I'm sure Naboth is like, oh, king, that is so sweet of you. Thank you for liking my vineyard. I too like my vineyard. And the king says, what I need you to do is let me have it. I would really like your vineyard. But here's the thing. It's really close to my house and I would like it for a vegetable garden. And if you give me your vineyard, here's what we can do. 
I will give you a nicer vineyard somewhere else, a better vineyard with more grapes. I don't know. Again, the vineyard thing is weird to me. With more grapes and better grapes and prettier grapes, and it's a nicer vineyard, you could have that. Or I can just give you the cash value of your vineyard, and you can take it and you could have it. But this vineyard wasn't just any old vineyard for Naboth. It was one that was passed down from generation to generation. It was his inheritance. It meant something not just to him, but to his entire family. And he says, King, that is really nice of you. And I really appreciate that you like my vineyard, but I can't give you my inheritance. I'm sorry. So King Ahab goes back and he's really grumpy sitting in his castle. It seems like a weird thing to be grumpy sitting in a castle. It feels like that should cheer you up, but it doesn't. And so he's talking to his wife, Jezebel. And again, you've got to You've got to really do some things wrong in your life to where when you mention someone's name, you go, ugh. And Jezebel is one of those ladies, right? We know that she has a really bad reputation. And so he's pouting and he's sad and he won't eat. And she says, baby, what's wrong? And he says, oh, this guy won't give me his vineyard. And it's a pretty vineyard and it's close and we could have vegetables in it. And she says, listen, you just eat. You, you drink, you do your thing. You let Jezzy take care of it. I assume he calls her Jezzy. And so Jezzy goes, and that's exactly what she does. She does her Jezebel thing. And so she orchestrates this whole dark thing where she accuses Naboth of blasphemy against God. And she has people bring accusations against him at this dinner party. And they drag him out and they kill him. And it goes real sideways real quick. And then she comes back and she says, hey, baby, guess what? Jezzy got you a vineyard. And so King Ahab takes the vineyard, and now he's got exactly what he wants. But God sends his prophet to come and to see him. And this prophet, who has had run-in after run-in after run-in with this king, stands before Ahab. And Ahab's greeting is very telling. He says, I see you found me, my enemy. Looking face to face with the prophet of God and calls him his enemy. Elijah says, I found you because you sold yourself to do what was evil in the sight of God. Elijah says, because of your jealousy, because of your greed, because of your covetousness, you allowed that to fester inside of you and you sold yourself to do what was evil in the sight of God just because there was something that you wanted that you thought could make you happy. Many of us spend our lives building these fantasy kingdoms, looking around and seeing what other people have or what we think that should belong to us. And these fantasy kingdoms become the driving force in our lives. And we find that not only is it damaging to ourselves and our relationship with God, but it has the power to damage our relationships with others as well. Think about even this man that's calling out to Jesus, wanting his brother to do something. There is division in that relationship. It has clearly gotten to a point to where these two brothers can't deal with this stuff on their own. And so he's trying to bring in a more powerful third party saying, Jesus, I need you to make my brother do what I want him to do. You see, chasing these kingdoms that don't really exist, these fantasy kingdoms, is marked by tragedy. And it always leaves in its wake disappointment and destruction. 
And Jesus says, listen, this guy thinks he knows what he wants, but you have to recognize that, that people, that we are not made up of the abundance of our possessions. That you are not going to find some sort of identity in the kingdoms that you're trying to obtain. And so listen, man, if I give you what you want, if you get this inheritance, it's not going to be enough for you because this can't bring you satisfaction. And so quit worrying about being envious. Quit worrying about being covetousness and being covetous and just follow after me and trust in me and I'll work all the details out and you'll find not just satisfaction here and now, but for all of eternity. He says, you're chasing a kingdom that can't satisfy you even if you catch it. But then he continues. He says, all right, let me tell you a story to help you understand this a little deeper. And Jesus says that there was once this rich man and he had a lot of land, maybe vineyards. I don't know. He had all this land and his land was producing greatly. More than he could possibly handle. And he thought to himself, what am I going to do? All my barns are full of everything that I could possibly want and everything that I could possibly need. What am I going to do with all this extra? Maybe, maybe I could give it to those in need. I got a better idea. I'm going to tear all my barns down and I'm going to build bigger barns. Because when you're out of room in one barn, what you need is a bigger barn. And so he says, I'm going to make these bigger barns where we have even more storage space. And so all of this extra, all of this plenty that's coming from my land, I can keep it so that I can be comfortable for the rest of my life. He says, I have everything that I could possibly need, that he's monetarily wealthy and he is rich in these material goods. And he says, so what am I going to do with it? I'm going to preserve my lifestyle. I'm going to make sure that I never find myself in a place where comfort is fleeting. He's storing all this up to maintain a kingdom, to find security in something that he's built and something that he's created. In verse 19, Jesus says, and I will say to my soul, I like this part, soul, just in case his soul wasn't sure who he was talking to. I will say to myself, soul, you did it. You've achieved everything that you could possibly desire. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And this is the dream, right? This feels like actually what we call the American dream, that he has earned up and worked up and done enough stuff to where he never has to work again and he can just rest on all that he's done for the rest of his life. This person would be celebrated in any culture because he's accomplished everything that he's ever worked for and he has set himself up for life. But Jesus disagrees. Verse 20, it says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? When you see that word pop up in scripture, it's a very harsh word. When someone is called a fool, it's one of the worst things that you can be called, especially when it comes from the lips of God. And God comes to this man. He says, look, you've worked for everything that you have ever desired. You've got it all. Everything you could possibly need belongs to you. But now, you dummy, it's over. Now, all that you've worked for that seems so smart, that seems so prudent, 
is just foolishness. Because tonight is the night that your soul is required of you. This is all this stuff that you have. What's going to happen to it? Who is it going to belong to now? Because it doesn't belong to you. And so Jesus is telling us a story of a man who stood rich before people, but was bankrupt before God. And what Jesus is painting us a picture here is something a lot more desperate than the old cliche that you can't take it with you. It's something much more heartbreaking than just the fact that this guy's going to die and he can't take all this stuff with him. Jesus says everything that you've saved, all that you've worked for is going to be broken up and given away. And not only are you not coming before God with it, you are going to stand before God with absolutely nothing. We have to imagine what this would look like with this kind of a person standing before God. A man who had had everything that he'd wanted his entire life, having to plead his case before a just and holy God, saying, listen, I, I won life. I did everything that I wanted to do. I accomplished everything that I wanted to accomplish. I had everything that I could possibly need and more to the point where I spent the rest of my life being happy, eating, drinking, being merry. God, I won God says, you have nothing of substance. Your belly was full for a few years, but your soul is empty and you have nothing standing before me now. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Jesus has taught us through this entire book of Luke that blessed are those who are willing to lose it all. Blessed are those who are more concerned with others than they are for themselves. Blessed are those who are concerned with the eternal more than they are the temporal, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When you're willing to hold your kingdom with a loose hand, God holds fast his kingdom with a clenched fist, and he waits, and he holds it, and he protects it for you, and then one day you'll be able to receive your reward. But if you hold on to your kingdom with clenched fists, you'll find one day that you have no choice but to let it go and your hands will be empty. And so we have to ask ourselves the very difficult question this morning. Does our lives mirror the life of this man that Jesus describes? Where do we find our security? And what things do we hope? How do we use the resources that God has given us, the good gifts that God has given us? Do we hoard those things to ourselves, hoping and praying that one day we'll find satisfaction in them? Or do we hold them with open hands, knowing that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord? Knowing that God has called us to use the good things that we have for the good and the hope and the love and the joy of other people as well. Jesus tells us here that one's life is not consistent in simply the abundance of the stuff that we have, but in the way that we follow Christ and the fact that we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we love our neighbors as ourselves, that we trust God when we have much and we trust God when we have little. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we believe this? Do we believe that our identity doesn't come from the stuff or the reception or the understanding that people have of us? It doesn't come from the things that we value and the things that we have great influence in our lives. 
but it comes from our identity as members of the kingdom of God. And that as long as we have that hope in Christ, that no matter whether we have much or we have little, we have security and satisfaction in Jesus because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He has a hope and an inheritance stored up for us, guarded by God, waiting for us in heaven. We all trust in some kind of a kingdom. Some of us are chasing a fantasy kingdom an ideal of what life could be or should be, and we can fill in the blanks for what it is. Sometimes it is as simple as monetary satisfaction, but there's so many things that we could put in that blank of if I just had this, I would be okay, and we spend our lives chasing a fantasy. Some of us have built our own kingdom. Some of us have taken hold of those things that thought if I just had this, then I'll be okay, and we find that when we take hold of those things like a dog that finally catches the car, it's not all that it was cracked up to be, and there's no satisfaction, at least on an eternal scale, in those things. But Jesus offers a better kingdom, a kingdom that brings unfailing hope, eternal security, that gives hope to the hopeless and peace to those who are restless, that brings about love and joy in a violent and harsh world, but not only here and now, but has a promise for us for all of eternity. But that kingdom does call us to be willing to lose it all for the sake of Christ. And not all of us have to lose everything. Not all of us find ourselves as Job, but all of us have the calling to say, God, here's all that I have, and you do with it what you will, because I trust your kingdom more than my own. But this is a really scary call. It's a really easy thing to say. It's a really easy thing to think about. It's easy to sing the old hymns that say, I surrender all, and they move us and they touch us. But the reality is to really look at God and say, everything that I have, from what's in my bank account to what's in my home to what I own to what I love, all those things belong to you and I trust you with those. It's a very hard thing to do. And it can cause us to worry. It can cause us to be anxious. It can cause us to be fearful. It can cause us not to trust. It can cause us to hoard. It can cause us to be selfish and covetous and envious. And so next week, we're going to continue on and look at verses 22 through 24 or through 34, excuse me. And we're going to see Jesus teaching us about how we pursue that kingdom of God about not being anxious about what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink, but trusting in the God that cares for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and recognizing that if we seek first the kingdom of God, then he'll add all the things that we need as we go along. But before we can get to the point of even figuring out how we're not going to worry about or be anxious about these things, we have to take inventory of our lives. We have to understand the kingdoms that we're chasing. What are we storing up? Where do we find our peace? How rich will we be the night our soul is required of us? Will we stand before God and talk about all the things that we used to have that are going to wither and fall away? Or will we stand before God saying, I have trusted you faithfully my entire life to the best of my ability, and I have built my life storing up treasures in heaven? This week, I want to ask us all to to just examine our lives. If you're a journaler, journal it. If you write it on things, if you write in your Bible, just take a moment 
and make an inventory of your life. The things that you treasure, the things that you value, the things that you've been given, the places where you find your identity. And you can be open and vulnerable and honest before a God who loves you in spite of all of that. And ask God to teach you where those things are leading you. To show you what kingdoms that you're chasing. And what things maybe we need to hold with a looser hand and trust those in the hands of a good and gracious God and be willing to lose them for the sake of following Christ if necessary. And as we list these things, as we look through these things next week, when Jesus teaches us about not being anxious about our lives, asking God to help us trust him with those things that are of ultimate value to us. To help us put them in proper perspective, but also to recognize that he is good and gracious and so that we can trust him with complete and total certainty. But let's take inventory of our kingdoms and ask that God would give us the passion to not be like this man demanding his inheritance from his brother, to not be like the man who stored up all the treasures and then had nothing standing before God, but that God would give us the ability to trust and hope and to seek first the kingdom of God, to follow after Christ at all costs, and to trust that one day when we stand before God, we will hear those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. Now come into my kingdom and I will make you over much. Let's chase the kingdom that matters, the kingdom that will provide for us not only security here and now, but satisfaction for all eternity.